0: and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Speak Too Soon by Glenn Matlock from his most recent solo album, Good To Go. We don't have Glenn here today, and as as many of you know, Glenn's been on the Strange Brew a couple of times. We have the guitarist on Speak Too Soon, the legendary Earl Slick today. Earl has played on so many artists' albums as well as been a solo recording start in his own right. He has a forthcoming show coming up with Glenn Matlock that we'll be talking about shortly, as well as we'll be covering a range of songs as we often do from his whole career. So let's hear my chat with Earl. It's Jason here uh, uh, for Strange Brew Podcast. Good morning. I've uh, spoken to Glenn a few times before, and I, I've spoken to Bernard Fowler a few weeks ago, so it's even a, a bigger pleasure to
1: speak to you. Oh, how is B doing? I haven't seen him in a while. He's been out for a while with the Stones.
0: He has, yeah. He's, uh, he's promoting his, uh, his solo album.
1: Oh, that's, Did you get a copy? It's really good. It's the spoken word one. Yeah, yeah. It's really excellent. Yeah,
0: no, it's uh, great. Yeah. One of the reasons we're here is, is to kind of mention, you know, some of the, the shows that you're doing with Glenn Matlock and including a, a show on August the 10th at the 229 Club. Uh-huh. You've played quite a bit with uh, Glenn over the recent years, haven't you?
1: Yeah, it's been really good. Um, we, we met up about 10-ish years ago. Maybe actually it was 2007, I think. But uh, yeah, um, the last couple of years has been really good because I get to come over here and, you know, it's, it's a great, fun band.
0: You've also played a bit on his uh, on Glenn's most recent solo album, Good to Go.
1: Oh, I played more than a bit. Let's give it here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I played just about. I think about it every track.
0: Yeah, I certainly like yeah. your work on uh, chats like Speak Too Soon. It's got your sort of Evo guitar on it.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. Which is kind of a cool thing to kind of. In, in. Uh, hold on a minute. I'm getting a. I don't know what this is. Uh, so, he's <laughs> handing me notes. What do you do, Gov? <laughs> Yeah, I know, he already knows that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> We're playing the 229 Club, if you didn't know, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep him quiet now.
0: But Speak Too Soon, you've got kind of got that sort of sustained sound in the background behind the, the guitarist. Yeah,
1: I've been using that live, actually, on maybe two, two if not three songs, uh, which is kind of, it's kind of cool because the band is so small i mean one electric acoustic and a rhythm section that you know when when i do go over to the evo and and there not being an electric rhythm in there it's great because it really keeps it opened up you know it's nice i enjoy it
0: yeah obviously it's great to kind of uh, go back as well because you've got such a body of work that you featured on to the mid-70s with uh, david bowie but i understand you came from playing in blues bands to, to working with david
1: yeah, it was, um, I mean, I, I mean, as a kid, that's the first music, uh, that really, when I started to play, I gravitated right to it. I, mean, I could thank the Stones for that because, um, you know, them being such a, uh, blues aficionados, um, I picked up, I loved the Stones, and then right from that I went, wow, this is cool. Where did they get this shit from, mm-hmm. you know? And being like 13 or 12 years old, I just went on a mission to, you know, search out the stuff. And so I bought all those old blues records and stuff, and that's how I learned to play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, making the transition from that to Bowie was a frightening thought at the time. I'm going, Hmm. holy shit. But somehow it worked.
0: You featured on the Diamond Dogs tour, but then went into Young Americans in the studio, which again was a shift in sound in terms of more soulful. So how did you bring the more blues sound to that, or was it a case of just trying to work with the material?
1: Um... When we did Young Americans, uh, my R&B chops go more towards like Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, James Brown kind of stuff, which that album was more on the pop R&B and like the OJs kind of a thing, which wasn't really something that I was very well versed in, but Carlos Alomar was. So that album to me, from a guitar point of view, is really a Carlos album. I mean, I'm there, but it's Carlos really carries that record.
0: Story that you've re- recounted in the past. Uh-huh. John Lennon actually remembered more about working with you than than you did. Yes.
1: <laughs> that was <laughs> I felt like a twat. He was just like, <laughs> he, yeah, he he uh, he was so happy that I was there and that we'd worked together before. I, I had to admit. I mean, I feel like a, but I don't remember, man.
2: I just behind the bridge, he lays her down. He frowns, See, my life's a funny thing. Am I still too young? He kissed the diamond there. She took his ring, took his babies. It took him minutes, took her nowhere. Never knows he'd have taken in a night. She wants a young. Flow. Live for just these 20 years to wait
0: He worked with uh, David again uh, soon after, actually, on Station to Station, and again a, a shifting sound. But you're talking about Carlos's role on Young Americans, but on, on certain tracks on Station to Station, it feels like you had more of a bigger role. You know, tracks like Stay. Well, is, is as that...
1: much as yeah, as much as Young Americans was a Carlos record, the Station was me because I played just about all. I mean, Carlos plays rhythm on about maybe four or five out of the songs, and. Um, the rest of it's all me, all the overdubs and everything. Because once we got the tracks cut, me and David basically did a lot of those overdubs and you know all that mm. feedbacking and the solos and all that shit. So, yeah, that's a slick album. And the Young Americans is the Carlos album. I mean, David would always gravitate towards mm. one or the other guitarist. In the case of Station, though, the, the the actual sound of the rhythm sound of that record is really a combination of Carlos and me being so polarized in the way we played and it working so well together
0: I think you had a, quite a role in the the riff on Golden Years which kind of really mixes more of your bluesy feel but with a it's got a bit funky as well
1: that comes from I got that riff from two places mm. inspired if not stolen from uh, Outside Women Blues by Cream yeah. and a little bit of a funky Broadway thing if you listen to both of those that riff I came up with is a combination of the two
0: was it the case that you had the core of the song from David, but as you, as, as the guitarist, to try and lift it in some way?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way that we would work it a lot of times, he might have, like, an opening riff, or he might not. And if he didn't, then it was up to me, you know, or Carlos, whoever was there to come up with it. In the case of that one, um, he had the structure. The song was pretty much, it was probably one of the few songs that was just about finished on his end when we went in there. And uh, But he just needed that signature lick to open the song up with. So I came up with it. I mean, I, it was so long, I don't remember how or what. But yeah, I do remember where it came from, though.
0: a year or two later you worked with uh, Ian Hunter and it felt at that, that this time that you were kind of swapping roles with Mick Ronson a bit?
1: Yeah, that seemed to be going on for a while back then. Hmm. <laughs> was, hmm. uh, yeah, that came about after Mick left. Did he go to do Dylan then? I don't remember what he did. Um, Maybe it was earlier than Dylan. I can't remember. But yeah, uh, there was a a guitar player, Void, in there. And I had just finished up doing some touring. And I was kind of on the loose at the time. And I know somehow Ian got in touch with me and we talked and I flew out. I was living in the L.A. area at the time. And I flew out back to New York and we put that thing together. And a shame it didn't last any longer, but we were up against some you know, typical business things that didn't help us out at the end, but it, I thought it was a really good record and a good band, because we, we toured over here. Mm. We did we mm. did the UK and Europe um, on that one.
0: You're down as a co-writing Miss Silver Dime on, on Ian's album? Yeah. Was that just because you had more of a role, adding the sort of guitar rather than just embellishing what Ian did?
1: Well, most of it was embellishing what Ian did because his, you know, mm. his his songs were pretty much together. I think "Silver Time" actually was written inspired by that lick, and then Ian went ahead uh, after he heard the lick and he basically wrote a song around it.
2: Come on
0: working with david working with ian he then works with john lennon understand that was that was through jack douglas the david's producer
1: it was a weird situation because i found out ah, i guess after we had been in the studio for a week or two that it actually came from john right because um you know unlike this brainless guitar player he remembered us working together and he had put together um his favorite, like, uh, these, the rest of the guys in the band were really the top of the line session players. Hugh McCracken uh, on guitar. He was great, Huey. And, uh, Tony Levin and Andy Newmark and so on. And those guys could read charts and, and they were, but they could still play, you know, they they didn't sound like, uh, sterile, uh, Mm. session musicians, you know, they could still give the music a lot of personality, and he just needed one guy in there that was really just more of a street rock and roll player. And and so I guess he thought about me when we worked together before. He had Jack contact me in big secrecy. Jack wouldn't tell us who it was, my manager. And I'm going, well, you got a record for me to do, and you're not telling me who it is, so it can't be Mr. Nobody. It's mm-hmm. got to be somebody that's doesn't want this leaking out. So I just picked in my brain. I'm going, okay, who's Jack Work with? Aerosmith, Lennon, this one, that one, Cheap Trick. I'm going, well, it can't be Cheap Trick. It can't be Aerosmith. And I went through the lineup and I went, okay, it's got to be Lennon because he hasn't recorded anything in a good five years. And if Jacks wants all this secrecy, this makes it. I was right, you know. And um, in one of the next conversations, I kind of just said, look, I mean, I'm dying to know who it is, and I think it's Lennon. And he got really quiet. I said, Okay, good. That's my answer. <laughs> that always works. You throw something out there, and if the guy gets quiet, you, you got it.
0: And you feature quite promptly on I'm Losing You. It's got that compressed sound on the guitar.
1: Isn't that cool? That was mm. John's idea. Ah. Um, when when me and Huey put that solo together with John, um, it was a Beatles trick of stacking. There's got to be three or four tracks of me and Huey playing that together Really mm-hmm. compressed to get that sound. Really clean, but really compressed. And it adds, like, it's. A, if you listen to Nowhere, man, you can hear it on there.
0: with us but there was the milk and honey album with the the music there largely completed in while he was alive
1: yeah uh, what happened with that was is that when we went in the studio we just kept cutting and cutting and cutting right you know that you know the way that things were done then is some fans would just go in there with you know 10 songs that were yeah. there people like john though would record a whole bunch of songs which was really good because then you could kind of Putting a, re- a record together, especially that kind of a record it's like a puzzle mm. and you need all the right pieces to fit in the right spots and you know if you just write ten songs, you may not have all the pieces so we caught two albums worth of stuff and then he picked what worked for, for double fantasy and then um, what was left over was milk and honey that we were going to go back in the studio at the beginning of 80, 1981, which didn't happen obviously, and we were going to finish off all the overdubbing on that. So what you hear on Milk and Honey is basically live, all of it. Gosh, Vocals vocals, and everything obviously, because we didn't really spend a lot of time putting vocals on those, or John didn't. And to
0: leave off tracks like nobody told me until later, something in kind of how, how confident you are in the the, the strength, strength of your material.
1: Absolutely. And the funny thing was, is that was one of the first one of the first things we recorded I, if I, my memory serves me I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, Just Like Starting Over was the first one and somewhere within those first two or three songs uh, Nobody Told Me was recorded
2: Deep ball. Well, Everybody's talking and No one says a word Everybody's making love and No one really cares There's Natchez in the bathroom, just below the stairs. All of something happening, and nothing going on. All of something cooking, and nothing in the pot. They're starving back in China, so finish what you got.
0: a decade you you, you got back with David one of the more interesting recordings Mm -hmm. I think it's from the reality sessions and um, you're on David's version of Waterloo Sunset
1: yeah (laughs) yeah actually that was cut after the album so if it's on the album it must have ended up on there as a bonus track yes yeah because we went in the studio with me let me see it was me DB Jerry Leonard played on it as well and Tony Visconti and Sterling Campbell. Yeah, that's that's how we cut that. We did it real quick because we went in the studio to recut Rebel Rebel for, I think, the Charlie's Angel movie soundtrack. And then while we were there, somehow it came up to do Warloo. Because um, me and David were always both in, very much into the kinks. And that being one of our favorite songs as well. So...
2: Over the river, where they feel safe and sound.
0: bit of a kinks link with um, Valentine's
1: Thank Day you. off. <laughs> Thank you. It's funny because even it, it's a lyric in there too ah. that he lifts from Orderless Sunset. But when I first heard he... he a lot of times we just sit around, especially on that... Um, actually, we did it a lot, but on, on, on the next day um, we would just sit in the control room and David would just play, you know, acoustically, you know, whatever new tune. And as soon as I heard valentine's day and i heard the chord changes and the attitude of it i said man this is this is really sounds like kinks so when i did the uh, when we played the actual uh basic track i i didn't even really think about it because it was already ingrained in my head and it's a very much of a kinks type of electric rhythm guitar in that like a very waterloo sunset actually you know so
0: was also on your
1: solo album, Zig Zag. Isn't it Evening as well? Um, It's funny because uh, I hadn't really intended on making a record, but I did some writing. And and then I said, I don't know, maybe I should take these into the studio and see what happens with a few of these things. Like maybe do an instrumental kind of a record, you know, top to bottom. And I uh, contacted Mark Plotty, uh, and said, you know, why don't we get some studio time and go in? So we we were gearing up to uh, start recording. So I called Mark, and he was in the studio, unbeknownst to me, with David, doing something or other. And in the course of the conversation, I guess David overheard his end of the conversation. He gets on the phone, he says, uh, I hear you doing some recording. I said, yeah. He said, uh, maybe you want somebody to play some tambourine or something on there? I said, you have anybody in mind? <laughs> and He just kind of laughed, and he said... Yeah, maybe even a vocal. I said, really? So uh, but one thing led to another, and I sent off like maybe a half a dozen very rough uh, ideas. You know, chord changes top to bottom, but no melodies or anything in there. And he actually, you know, that's what he wrote to what I sent him.
2: One dies on the lawn His face turned away from it all Isn't it I forget if it's always this way I was told it was gone to stay I suppose it was But the memories won't quit, And they tell a story his fate lies upon the shore Fading and thin One face flushed in lavender Isn't it evening? I forget if it's always this way
0: We opened up with uh, one of Glenn's tracks that you featured on. It, it seems appropriate, especially given the upcoming show at the Two Two Nine Club that you've got with Glenn. To close with another track that you featured on with Glenn—is are there any other songs from Good to Go other than Speak Too Soon that you like?
1: You know, I like I like all of the stuff on that record. Um, the one that we we covered, the Happy, right? We, oh, it's not on that one, is it? Or is it? No, no, no it's not.
0: It, I think that was on that was on YouTube.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh but yeah, I, I I like all of them, man. And it's kinda cool because glenn's writing is not predictably where his roots come from or what people perceive as his roots, let's say that. Mm. Um so the stuff's a lot more interesting which which actually is is great because then I get to stretch out a little bit where I could do some Ebo stuff and some slide things and different textures and Uh, And it's great, too, because of the way the band is structured. We could do it live, because I'm not a big believer in you have to cover every single thing that you did on the album. No. Because a record and live are two different animals to me, whereas, you know, when you're doing a record, you are somewhat uh, under uh, under your own microscope. As soon as you know you're recording, you get a little weird. (laughs) Mm. I do. You know, when I'm live, I don't, whatever, whatever kind of like hits me at the moment live, I'll do. So, you know, I mean, we keep the basic structure of the songs like any other band that I played with, but there's, there's times where I will stretch out and I'm not sold on, on copying my own solos note for note, because I really can't.
0: (laughs) No, no.
1: It's as hard for me to copy one of my own solos as it is to copy another guitarist solo because they pop out on the spur of the moment because most of the solos were probably first takes.
0: Yeah, keep it fresh.
1: Yeah, because I get bored and I can't do anything twice in a row the same way. It's impossible. It drives producers nuts. Hmm. They'll go, well, could you you know, do that again? I can't, no. So if it feels good, then that's the, that's the take, and it's usually the first or the second take. As soon as I hit take three and four, it goes to hell in a handbasket, because that's when I start to think, mm, and if I'm yeah. thinking, I don't get a good solo.
0: Okay, well, let's uh, let's finish off with hooking you. I
1: hooking love hooking you. you. Oh, brilliant. Love that.
0: That's great. Well, all the best with uh, your show as one of the Tough Cookies, Glenn Matlock and the Tough Cookies at the 229 Club on August the 10th. In, uh, in London. So thank you so much, Earl.
1: Yep, that's exactly on, on Great Portland Street, ah. London, as Locke put on this little napkin that he put out <laughs> here for me. <laughs> the Gov's a piece of work.
0: Lovely. Well, all the best uh, while you're over here in the UK. All right. All right, take care. Bye-bye.
1: Cheers, mate.
3: Without even trying i tell you what I do Without even trying I'm gonna get my hook in you No matter what you say No matter what you do Better, better. Solid ground, won't be no hesitation, won't see no fluctuation, this is the situation, here's the inside information, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, better Bye.